We're still talking about kingdom citizenship and what that means and how it impacts our lives. So far, we've seen that kingdom citizens love freely, they forgive fully, they give generously, and they serve humbly the very least of those in society, the defenseless, the marginalized, widows, orphans, the injured on the side of the road that others just walk right by. And we've seen that they are united in this service, finding identity together as kingdom citizens rather than dividing over race, nationality, language, politics, or any other artificial barrier. My message topic last Sunday was of race relations, and it's a very social, political kind of issue for a great many, and yet for those of us that are informed by our kingdom citizenship, it's not social or political. It is a human issue to which the Bible speaks, and it is an issue that most of those who do not follow Jesus view differently than those of us that that follow Jesus Christ. Racial issues outside the body of Christ, for those that are not followers of Jesus Christ, they politicize, they polarize, and they divide people. The unity of the Spirit is, is, is the power itself to overcome that divide. And that's what God wants to see among us in the church. When Paul speaks of the idea that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, in the first century, Greco-Roman non-Jews looked down upon Jews as overly pious, as arrogant, and elitist in their views of themselves. The Jews, conversely, viewed the Greco-Romans as godless, immoral, and licentious, man. They just they did whatever they wanted to do to feed their flesh. And these were huge issues that divided along ethnic lines. But when these people, Jews and Greeks, came together, when they both united, decided to be followers of Jesus, their differences dissolved in a Christian ethic that called them to love others, and especially to love those others that were part of the body of Christ. How we live our lives in relationship with one another, in in relationship with the world that exists outside the church, that population of people that are not kingdom citizens, That's what determines how bright the light and the love of Jesus Christ shines. It's of critical importance that that we not allow race to divide. It is critical as well that we stand against any form of discrimination based on race, ethnicity, language, or gender. Paul said, no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one race. We are equal partners. We are members of the same body, the kingdom of God. This morning, I want to speak about another issue that's driven by the ethic of the kingdom citizen, an ethic rooted in love of God and the love of others, especially the most defenseless and vulnerable among us. I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139 this morning. Psalm 139. And as you turn the pages of your Bible to Psalm 139, and in this Psalm, David contemplates the incredible omniscience of God. God's omniscience refers to the fact that he is all-knowing. He has complete knowledge of all things. He created all things, and so it only stands to reason that he would have 
knowledge, a full knowledge of all things. David understands this, and so he seeks to express it as it relates to himself. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. See, David's understanding of God's full knowledge informs him that God is aware of his every word, of his every thought, let alone his every action. No matter where he is or what he is doing, God is watching and he's listening. David's astonished as he com contemplates it. In verse 7, he says, I can never escape your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. David acknowledges God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence is the reality that because he created space and time and resides outside of space and time, he sees all things. He looks upon his creation from a vantage point that we do not fully understand. But from his vantage point, outside of space and time, nothing escapes his attention. David says, no matter where I go, you are there. But not to spy on me. God's not some kind of hacker that's turned your computer camera on you just to watch and see what you're doing when you're not aware. God loves you, and he cares for you. He watches his own to guide and to strengthen and to support them. In verse 13, he says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. David marvels at the wonder of God's creation of human, human beings, their complexity. We live in a time, as I said last week, when Darwin's theory of evolution is considered settled science by many in the scientific community. It is accepted and it is taught without question in our schools today. But to believe in evolution is to believe, as Nobel Prize winning French biologist Jacques Monod believed, his quote, chance alone is the source of every innovation, of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, is at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. 
This is what's being taught in our schools. And as I say, it's taught as settled science. It's just, it's, it's taught and it's accepted and it's perpetuated. This is from an article by apologist Hank Hanegraaff. He says, chance in this sense, it is referred to here, refers to what happens without cause. Thus, chance implies the absence of both a design and a designer. Reflect for a moment on the absurdity of such a notion. Imagine suggesting that Christopher Wren had nothing whatsoever to do with the design of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Imagine asserting that the majestic Messiah composed itself apart from Handel. Or, without, or, or, or imagine claiming that the Last Supper painted itself without Leonardo da Vinci. Now, consider an even more egregious and absurd assertion that an eye, an egg, or the earth itself, each in its vast complexity, are merely functions of random chance. Ironically, Darwin himself found it hard to accept the notion that the eye could be the product of blind evolutionary chance, conceding that the intricacies of the human eye gave him quote-unquote, cold shudders. In his landmark publication, The Origin of the Species, Darwin avowed to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, for the correction of spherical and chromatic ab aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, Absurd in the highest degree possible. Darwin's words. He called this dilemma the problem of, his words again, organs of extreme perfection and complication. Absurd in the highest degree. So how do we deal with the absurdity? A classification of organs. Those that are extremely perfect and complicated. Unexplainable. It is laughable for those of us convinced that God created. We would never assume that computers or cell phones or jet airplanes just happened by chance. They were conceived. They were designed. They were created. Yet the most complex thing in all of the universe, a human being with the intricacies of the human body, the coordinated inner workings of all of the organs, endowed with a very intelligence to create computers and cell phones and space travel, this simply happened by chance. Absurd indeed. Unbelievable. David did not struggle with the foolishness of the enlightenment of our times. David knew the one who created him so intricately, so completely. And he understood that God created him with point and with purpose. Every moment laid out before he was even born. In verse 17, he says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They, they cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still there. David expresses the effect of contemplating the magnificence of God. God is so mighty and powerful, so vast and complete, so perfect and righteous in all of his ways to dwell too long on these thoughts, David says, is exhausting. 
David says, exhausted to sleep. When I wake, you, God, are still there in all your might and your power and your magnificence. And then in verse 19, David says this. Oh, God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. This sounds odd to our New Testament ears as ones who have read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, 5, verse 43. Passage we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, loving enemies is the mark of children of God. I, I shared with some of you last week a, a story told me by an open doors worker. He spoke with a Syrian mother of Two young girls, 10 to 12 years old, radical Islamists had been through their village and told the villagers that they would return the next day and they would execute all who refused to acknowledge Allah. The mother told her daughters, tomorrow some men are going to come and when they enter our home, they'll be carrying knives. When they come in, they will grab your head and they will place the knife to your throat. And then you will feel warmth around your neck, your blood. When you feel that warmth, when, when this happens, I want you to look in the face of the man who holds your head, look him in the eyes, and forgive him. And then pray God's forgiveness for the man as well. And then we will go and see Jesus. That's the mark of love that's the measure of the love of Christ now these these things are they're so outside the realm of our experience they're hard for us to understand but that's the understanding of someone caught in the midst of persecution with people that hate them we're gonna forgive them even if they take our earth, earthly lives from us we're going to forgive them we're gonna do what Jesus has called us to do and then we'll go see Jesus We'll leave it in his hands. So how do we square this with David's words? I want you to think Goliath with me for just a moment. As Israel and Philistia squared off in the valley of Elah, David went out to meet the Philistian champion Goliath in single combat, each of them representing their respective armies. And when Goliath saw David, the scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 17, 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, the, the Philistine Goliath and, and, and his people, the people of Philistia, did not recognize Yahweh, the God of Israel. Goliath had daily derided the army of Israel, thereby deriding the God of Israel. Goliath was an enemy of of God and David was willing to go to war against the enemies of God's God's enemies were his enemies the call of the the new covenant in Jesus's blood changes this with one exception 
in the spiritual realm. The realm in which God and his angels reside and Satan and his demons reside. God's enemies are our enemies. In the spiritual realm, there is no changing sides. There is no hope for the salvation of the fallen. In the physical realm, there is hope for those who reject Jesus. As long as they have breath in their lungs as with the thief on the cross. And so we hate righteously the enemies of God in the spiritual realm. Thus, as the Apostle Paul says, we put on armor to go to war, to go to battle against those spiritual enemies. But we love our enemies here in the knowledge that they may yet choose Christ. David closes the psalm in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. David's desire in light of God's complete knowledge in him was that God would reveal any area of his life that was not pleasing to God. He just he wanted to be conformed to that which was pleasing to God. He wanted to be in lockstep with God and God's spirit. He wanted his life to be one that pleases God. I would suggest to you a, a great approach for all of us that we could say to God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I want to return to verses 13 through 16 for just a moment. These are verses which once again speak to the complexity of human life and the reality that it exists within the womb. Conception itself is the work of God. It is the mending together of sperm and egg that results in human life. From Johns Hopkins Medicine website regarding pregnancy, it says of the first trimester, the most dramatic changes in development happen during the first trimester of pregnancy. During the first eight weeks, a fetus is called an embryo. The embryo develops rapidly, and by the end of the first trimester, it becomes a fetus that is fully formed. By the end of four weeks, all major systems and organs begin to form. The neural tube, which becomes the brain and the spinal cord, the digestive system, the heart, the circulatory system begin to form. The beginnings of the eyes and the ears are developing. Tiny limb buds appear, which will develop into arms and legs, and the heart begins to beat. By the end of eight weeks, all major body systems continue to develop and functions, including the circulatory, nervous, digestive, and urinary systems develop. The embryo is taking on a human shape. The mouth is developing tooth buds, which will become baby teeth. The eyes, the nose, the mouth, and the ears are becoming more distinct. The arms and the legs can be easily seen. The fingers and toes are still webbed, but can be clearly distinguished. The main organs continue to develop, develop, and you can hear the baby's heartbeat using an instrument called a Doppler. The bones begin to develop, and the nose and jaws are rapidly developing. The embryo is in constant motion, but cannot be felt by the mother at this point. After eight weeks, the embryo is now referred to as a fetus, which means, according to Johns Hopkins' website, 
and I verified this, which means offspring. Although the fetus is only one to one and a half inches long at this point, all major organs and systems have been formed. During the final weeks of the first trimester, 9 to 12, the external genital organs are developed, fingernails and toenails appear, eyelids are formed, fetal movement increases, the arms and the legs are fully formed, and the voice box, the larynx, begins to form in the trachea. They go on to say the fetus is most vulnerable during the first 12 weeks. During this period of time, all of the major organs and body systems are forming and can be damaged if they're exposed to anything toxic or unhealthy. Some of you are familiar with the, the Guttmacher Institute. They've been around for many years. They say they're a primary source for research and policy analysis on abortion in the United States. And they say their data is more comprehensive even that of the U.S. government. At many points, they track abortion-related legislation policies. They say on their website that they are promoting, they exist to promote access to abortion services, making an evidence-based case against restrictions that limit access. Guttmacher supports abortion. The most recent year for which they provided statistics was 2014, during which 926,200 abortions were performed in the United States, which is a record low in the United States, but still almost a million abortions. Guttmacher goes on to say, this is a quote, the reasons patients give for having an abortion underscored their understanding of the responsibilities of parenthood and family life. The three most common reasons, each cited by three-fourths of the patients. In other words, of almost a million abortions, 700 to 750,000 of them are accounted for by these reasons. They were concerned for or responsible to other individuals. They were concerned about the inability to afford raising a child and the belief that having a baby would interfere with their work, school, or the ability to care for dependents. Half said they did not want to be a single parent or were having problems with their husband or their partner. In other words, these certainly were not abortions medically required or suggested in any way. These were healthy embryos, fetuses, preborn babies, whatever you prefer to call them, aborted, not because the child wasn't viable or healthy in utero, in utero, nor because pregnancy or birth were a threat to the mom's physical health. These were aborted because of, I would suggest to you, the brokenness of mankind, a lack of faith in God, whether the person was a follower of Christ or not, a lack of faith in God to provide resource or strength to raise a child. From Princeton University's website, Dr. Diane Irving, writing in the International Journal of Sociology and Social Policy, it's a 1999 article entitled, When Do Human Beings Begin? Dr. Irving says for fertilization to be accomplished, a mature sperm and a mature human oocyte are needed. Before fertilization, each has only 23 chromosomes. They each possess human life since they are parts of a living human being but they are not each whole living human beings themselves. They each have only 23 chromosomes, not the 46 chromosomes, the number of chromosomes necessary and characteristic for a single individual member of the human species. Furthermore, a sperm can produce only sperm proteins and enzymes, and an oocyte can produce only 
oocyte proteins and enzymes, neither alone is or can produce a human being with 46 chromosomes. However, the fusion of the sperm with 23, the oocyte with 23 chromosomes, at fertilization results in a live human being. This new single cell human being immediately produces specifically human proteins and enzymes and genetically directs his or her own growth and development. In fact, this genetic growth and development has been proven not to be directed by the mother. Finally, this new human being, the single-celled human zygote, is biologically an individual, a living organism, an individual member of the human species. Dr. Irving continues, as pointed out above in the background section, there's a radical difference scientifically between parts of a human being that only possess human life and a human embryo or a human fetus that is an actual human being. Abortion is the destruction of a human being. I mean, this is the thing that's debated is when does personhood, when are we actually killing a person by way of abortion? Is it when the heart starts beating at roughly four weeks? Is it when brain waves start flowing, which some suggest is as early as eight to 10 weeks? When, when is it? Dr. Irving says it is at the point of conception. Abortion is the destruction of a human being. Destroying a human sperm or a human oocyte would not constitute abortion since neither are human beings. The issue is not when does human life begin, but rather when does the life of every human being begin? David understood the nature of life. He understood that it was given by God, that it was formed in the womb. Abortion destroys a life that God made, that God mended together a Christian ethic. The ethic and moral view of a kingdom citizen is one that marvels at the creation of life and at God's love and pursuit of human life. The understanding that David expressed in Psalm 139. And I know that this is a controversial issue for some, but David said, and this is my challenge to you. If you struggle with this, search me, O God, and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts. You know, what David was saying was is my anxiety, my, my thoughts are anxious because I don't want to be out of step with you, God. Know my anxious thoughts and test me. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I, I want to challenge you this morning if you struggle with what I've shared, then, then seek that which David sought, a full understanding of the heart of God, that God would search you deeply and correct and instruct you gently and that your heart would be conformed to him. And I know in, in a group this large that is of my generation, listen, before I became a Christian, I will confess to you freely, it occurred to me at a number of points that girls that I was with girlfriends that there was always the possibility of someone getting someone <laughs> not someone of the girl that i was in relationship with getting pregnant i was not a christian and the idea of abortion was always the number one choice on my list if she gets pregnant we just get an abortion i wasn't a believer i was not a believer in jesus christ and i would have fallen within the in that description of individuals for which 
They just, it was not the right time to have a child. It would have interrupted work. It would have interrupted relationship. It would have interrupted my life. I would have been one that would have been pushing hard in that direction. What I'm telling you is, is as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny that which is convenient for himself. Let him deny himself. Let him deny all of those old thoughts, all of those old beliefs. Behold, the old is past. All things have become new. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, with a Christian ethic, I, I view these things differently now than I did then. I will confess I viewed them differently before. So I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that someone of my generation may well have experienced abortion. And my word to you is, is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, sin is forgiven. God has forgiven the sin of my sinful ways and my sinful worldly philosophy. And I, man, I don't ever want to address a subject like this and leave someone laboring with great guilt because of a decision that they made in their youth. What I want you to know as a follower of Jesus Christ God forgives. God forgives. But God loves life. And God loves life. He's the one that created life. He's the one that still creates life. He's the one that sustains life. He's the one of which the scriptures say that he did not believe equality with God was something worthy of being clung to, but made himself nothing and took on the image of a human being made himself nothing he humbled himself even to death on the cross why so that we might have life that's how important life is to god this is john 3:16 god loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would put their faith and trust in him would not perish but have eternal life and God values life. And God calls us, as followers of Jesus Christ, to value life as well. And so I, I, I challenge you this morning. Don't walk in guilt. Man, just know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, sin is forgiven. But we need to align. Let's align our thoughts and our hearts with God. Ask all of you to stand. Once again, the key to this is being a follower of Jesus Christ. These, these, are, these are things that I would have never embraced them as one that did not follow Jesus Christ at a time in my life. They meant nothing to me. They were, they were as laughable as we find Darwin's theory of evolution at so many points in this day and time. But you won't, you won't embrace the Christian ethic that sees one race that says, I will not allow racial divides to encumber my interaction with anyone. These are artificial barriers. Kingdom citizens, man, we value love and generosity and forgiveness and ministering to people and race doesn't divide us and we value life. We're people that value life. It's part of what marks us as kingdom citizens. You won't embrace those ethics until you surrender to Christ because it's only the Holy Spirit of God that embraces those ethics. I've said it many times. The Spirit of Charles does not embrace a Christian ethic. He embraces an ethic 
that is favorable to Charles, but the spirit of Christ within always embraces the Christian ethic and calls me to follow. So this morning, that's, that's God's call to you. Will you follow? You respond to God.